0: Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Life in the Peloton. I'm going to be flying solo this week doing the intro. I've got a special episode coming up for you. I spoke with Simon Mottram, and you may know that name, or you might know this name a little bit better, Rafa. He is the CEO of Rafa, the man who created the product that we all know out on the market right now. Back in 2004, he created this brand and has flourished into what it is today. The reason why I thought about talking to Simon was I thought... Well, how does this clothing come from an idea to getting on my back out there in the peloton? I wanted to know what it was like behind the scenes to create an idea like this, an iconic brand that's changed what cycling clothing is over the last decade or more. So it's a fantastic episode. We really sit back and find out that story, the peaks and troughs of the company as it come to what it is today. So guys, I really hope you enjoy this episode. Sit back and enjoy it. Here he is, Simon Mottram. All right, well, Let's get cracking here. Welcome to Life in the Peloton. Today I'm talking with Simon Mottram and if anyone out there doesn't know who that is, he's the founder of the London-based cycling clothing brand Rafa. and now I'm sure you know what I'm talking about because everyone knows Rafa Clothing. Welcome Simon, welcome to the podcast mate. Very nice to be here Mitch. I want to go back to the beginning and I want to talk a little bit about where this brand came from because for me it was a little bit when I look back into your history of who you were, it seems a little bit left field. You started as an accountant at Waterhouse Cooper. You worked for 20 years in branding, you know, with companies like Chanel, Aston Martin. And what I want you to do is help everyone understand what cycling the fashion was like, or even the bike shop scene, or even the clothing scene was like in the 90s. And that's when I think you started to formulate this idea and you started to see the gap in the market. So Help us understand what you were seeing and what was missing and where then Rafa started to come from.
1: Yeah, it's a good setup. Um, it's a long time ago because we launched in 2004. So you're right. The 90s is when it first started to properly percolate for me. And when I was a kid, my impression of cycling and when I fell in love with it was it was all about France and Italy. And it was, you know, it was the Tour de France and it was the Cote d'Azur and its color and its style and it's wow, it's fantastic and as I became more interested in cycling as an enthusiast in my kind of 20s, I suppose, I realized that it didn't look like that to the mm-hmm. the regular punter. I've got quite a few photos I, I plastered all over my wall when I was first thinking about it. And there was one that I remember really well, which is Chris Boardman, who is utter hero. I think he's I think he's next to God. He's fantastic in what he does. <laughs> but there's a picture of him sitting on a fence wearing full blue Asos, And Assos is a great company with great products, but you'll remember that sort of like bright blue royal blue full outfit tights winter jacket winter sort of belgian hat all blue and black and he's sitting with his sort of everything's hunched over and he just looks like a really sad gnome and and it's (laughs) and to me the whole attitude of that was what cycling felt like it was in the closet you know Mm. we hadn't come out of the closet it was shy and bashful and a bit withdrawn and it was a place that sad weirdos lived Mm. And yet, I didn't think I was like that. And the people I knew who rode bikes weren't really like that either. But yet, that was what was around. And if you went to a bike shop, and I'm sure it was true in Australia as well, when you were growing up, it's the same thing. It was like a sort of backwater. None of the mm. sort of retail trends had hit cycling. It was still run by ex-pros and there were boxes of kit at the corner. And it was a bit dusty and people <laughs> sneered at you when you came in and took the piss out of you generally as you handed over the money. <laughs> and so, I was kind of like and I was riding a lot of the time and becoming more and more interested in it. I'm just thinking, this is crazy. You know, this is I, I love cycling. I love everything about it apart from the kit I'm trying to buy and the way it's sold. Um, yep. So, that's kind of where it came from, really.
0: Well, then fast forward to 2004 when it was actually founded. And there's a book I want you to talk about, which was a big inspiration. And I, I think the title is La Tour de France and Team. Which you mm. then renamed "King of Kings of Pain." <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that book, and because for me, when I discovered that book after learning about it, that really is the image that we see now, but in a modern day sort of feel.
1: Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, it's, it was so important. A friend of mine bought it for me for my birthday in about '97, I think. A guy called Tim, and uh, he knew I was passionate about road cycling, and we both. Rode quite a lot, and he bought me this book, and it was in french and There were two things about it that struck me and, I, and at the time, I was really thinking, what, what can I do? What is there about cycling that I could do that could make it better? And the book was like a gateway, it just opened it up for me. Two things about it that were interesting: First of all, there were no bikes really in it. Mm. there was actually no pictures of people on bikes so it 's a, it's a book about the heroes of the Tour de France, and yet there were no pictures of them on bikes. It was all about them sort of having massages. In the bath, reading the paper, smoking fags because yeah, I was about to say sees. smoking
0: cigarettes, yeah, <laughs> drinking beers.
1: <laughs> they were sort of like being regular people, and yet you look to them; they all look like superheroes. They look like film stars, you know. And it, so it was it was all about the human being. There's something about it, it was, and that made me realise. Ah, oh, so what I love about sighting isn't the sort of the gears and the metal and the carbon fiber and stuff actually it's the human experience of riding a bike is a thing that i am totally in love with and Mm. it's the human experience of racing that i find so compelling as well it's you know these are you guys are doing these unspeakably awful things heroically and pushing yourself way beyond and that shows you something about the human condition so that was that was the first thing that was interesting about the book the second thing was as you say, they just looked really good because they were mm. it was fifties sixties, and seventies. I think it got right up to about nineteen eighty and the kit was necessarily simpler. most of the shots were black and white it was they, they just looked so elegant and so stylish frankly, and I just thought wow that's that's what I want to look like when I'm riding my bike that's what I think I look like, and mm. I don't I never look like that, <laughs> but in my head that's the impression that's the image I have." for myself and for the sport so that gave us this idea of gave me this idea of, it's got to be pared down it's got to be super simple it's got to be you know very very understated and focus on colors that really work and you know just go against the crazy polty sort of explosion in a paint factory that was going on at the time
0: the 90s feel that was sort of happening that would be uh it's pretty attractive these days you know I oh of totally like, and th- yeah. things
1: come around right th- things definitely come around um <laughs> And, yeah, you know, one of the reasons we've, with with your team, one of the reasons we've had so much fun is because we got to thinking in about 2018, 2019 that the, the person was all looking quite nice. It was all looking mm. good taste level. You know, there was a bit of fading going on. People had re- removed some of the logos. They'd realized that that was a bad idea. They were at least paying attention to what Kit looked like. But it all looked a bit boring. So mm. let's come in and do something a bit more outrageous, hence our crazy pink and blue kit and palace and everything else so you 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 do have to yin to the yang don't you but i think the rules still apply that more often than not it's better to be a bit more pared down and elegant than it is to be a bit leery unless you can carry it off
0: i I totally agree and i think like i want to talk about what you sort of just alluded to there is that in the book and maybe this gave you the idea or maybe it just developed over the years and it's something that i've felt since being working with you with the team, and I'm getting a little bit of an insight into the company of Rafa itself, is that it's not just about clothing, it's about the passion of cycling, and that's something that you stay true to. From what I understand, at the company and yeah. working at Rafa, it's like it's very easy to get sidetracked into you know, when you look at the brand Rafa and, you know, you do casual clothing as well and you're you're doing a bit of gravel and then there's something here, there's something there. But at the end of the day, from what I understand, you're a very passionate cycling fan and pro road racing is where it starts from, where it stems from and that's where it needs to come back to. Mm. Yeah. And I want you to talk about, if you can, describe for me what it's like working at Rafa and one of the one of the things that are really important, and i've I've heard about these Monday morning meetings and how the Monday mornings start with a five minute presentation. You know like that's a simple thing. Tell me a little bit about these things and why and how you've kept the passion of cycling involved in the company without it you know leading astray.
1: Wow, I could talk for a long time about that, um so mm. stop me if I get boring. Yeah we're, we're, I always say we're not a, a clothing company and people say, you know what is Rafa is it? you know are you're a cycling clothing company? So, no, we're a cycling company. We're a cycling business. It's about cycling. It's not about clothing per se. I love clothing and you know, I, I love kit and products and we do at RAFA and we're, you know, we're very passionate about it. But we're passionate about it because we love cycling. It's about making cycling better. It's not about mm. making product for the sake of product. And it's always been that way. And um, it instructs us in things like how we go to market. You know, So we're direct to consumer because we want to talk to people about cycling. You know, we want to have a relationship with them about cycling, not because we can make more margin by being D2C. Yeah, you know, We have clubhouses, not shops, because we want to celebrate the sport and connect people to the sport, not just sell them some products. So it affects everything. And, and you're right, internally in the culture, it's really, really important. You know, we, Our values are all about that. We do all sorts of things internally to reinforce why we love the sport and what it is about the sport that we love. Um, and Monday mornings is one aspect of that. So every like most companies, we start out each week with a, 30 minute or so company meeting For the last year they've all been on zoom so that's been really yeah. frustrating but, <laughs> yeah, I can but at least it means that my colleagues in asia and the u.s can watch the thing rather than being in the office in london um and the first thing we do is racing so mm. you know you don't have to be a racing aficionado or total fan to work at rafa but i'm pretty sure that by the time you leave or after a few years you will be because it's A process of indoctrination, basically, (laughs) and yeah, I don't see how you can make the best product or communicate the best content about the sport unless you have some interest yourself. So my job, my mission is to make is to indoctrinate everybody at Rafa. So yes, every Monday morning they have to listen to what happened at the weekend, and we've got some we call them chamois sniffers. We've got some chamois sniffers in the (laughs) office who are as mad about it as I am. And there's a a roll call of probably fifteen, twenty people who. Go through, and each week one of them will present what happened last week in quite a lot of detail. <laughs> so, yeah, frankly, if you're not really interested in cycling and you have to put up with that every Monday morning, you, you know, maybe it's not the best place to work, you know. So, but it's good fun, and it's it. it just we try and keep it light, and we try and you know introduce people to. It. And if we can't do that, then how's this? How are we going to get customers to take up cycling and get involved in the sport if we can't get our own staff to do it? So, yeah, it's it's pretty obsessive.
0: Yeah, and like, and there's other things as well that I've heard of, you know, the Wednesday ride day, come to work at 1 p.m., you know, the quarterly rides, finishing at the pub. You know, these are things that I, if I had my own company, these are the things that I would love to to keep there. You know, not necessarily because of the cycling, whether it be something else, the Wednesday run or, you know, every quarterly just walk into the pub. That is what makes, I think, a really nice, tight-knit team. And you've said you're so passionate about it that you're like, no, it's going to be cycling-based. This is a cycling, you know company let's let's keep that involved So the point on. like of you doing the testing you know you wear the test wear you test the clothing yourself you know it'd be easy just to go you know what I once upon a did that once upon a time did that but you know I've moved on the company's too big for me but it's like from what I understand you're out there wearing the clothing just like I am yeah I, I
1: well I'm not sure i wear it just like you do but I, <laughs> I definitely <laughs> wear it um yeah I'm still passionate about doing all that stuff I have to be a bit careful because I'm 55 now and not very fast and and I'm somewhat stuck in my ways, you know. Yeah. I I, I watch every minute of Etoile de Bessege, whereas lots of my staff probably don't really know what Etoile de Bessege Besage is. <laughs> Still less be able to pronounce it. Um so I have to be a bit careful not to sort of to I'm not the lead test to put it that way. We've got much better people who I'm sure you've come across who who test our product. Um but no, it's really important. It's it's really important we're about something. is about cycling. We're not about sports or about mm having a business, we're about cycling and we're utterly passionate about it. And that drives everything forward. And the other thing, which is probably just as important, but maybe not as um, rational, is that this is my way of being able to ride my bike all the time. Mm. So, you know, I had to, (laughs) I mean, I didn't create the company so I could ride my bike, but it really helps that on Wednesday mornings I can go for a ride because I can't at weekends because I've got disabled son and it's always been, you know, time's been a real problem for me. So at least within RAFA, I can travel the world and ride with people like you and I can ride on Wednesday mornings and no one's going to frown on me for riding my bike. So, Uh,
0: I think that's the point. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the point. I describe this to a lot of guys who, you know, and this happened to me with with cycling is it starts off as a passion and then all of a sudden it transitions into a job and there's this point in in your career where you go, I don't know if I really love this anymore. And then you go, hang on, mate this is a job now, but this is a job that I love to do. And you, from what I'm just hearing you now, you're like, I need to create a job that I love to do. I could just keep pushing this and suddenly I'm making money and I'm doing something, but it's actually not what I enjoy. It's like, well, hang on, let's just keep the enjoyment in it. If that means, you know, allowing everyone to have half a day off work on a Wednesday to ride, so be it, because that's what's going to make me happy. And, you know, everything's going to roll on from there
1: and it's it's never once felt like a job. You know, my mm. my mum when I used to call it my mum and she'd say how's your job? I said well it's kind of not really a job. It's it's a bit more um all, all consuming than a job. Um and it's never felt like a job. Um I'm sure for some people at raffer it does and yeah you know, the the ambition is to stop that and to make it feel more like a a mission and and a passion and and a it's a lifestyle too and yeah I I, I I'm so lucky that my personal interest and my professional expertise, such that it was, and the market opportunity all came together to create this thing called Rafa, and it's, it's it's been quite successful. So, yeah, mm. living the dream, really.
0: Let's talk about when you entered the peloton, um, because you know, two thousand and four, the company started. By two thousand and eight, you're already sponsoring slash half. I'm pretty sure you're half owning a team, yeah. Rafa Condor, which was Condor as a bike company from the UK, Rafa being you. Um, And that was your foot into the door to the racing side of things. Tell me about the beginning. Like, what was your idea there? Was that always the idea? Once I get my own brand, I want to sponsor a team or how'd that all come about?
1: I've got to to admit it wasn't at the start. You know, I've always tried to be quite respectful of the fact that even though I'm an enthusiast and people who work with me are enthusiasts, there is a massive, there's light years between what we do and what professional racers do and... And it's quite hard to imagine being in that peloton or being qualifying to be part of that peloton. And when we started out, it was very much trying to kit out people like ourselves who Mm. weren't pro athletes. So, you know, and actually we could have better products than you guys sometimes. You know, we could have Mm -hmm. nicer fabrics that, you know, maybe you couldn't wash at 40 degrees in a hotel um, washroom on a race, but that didn't matter. We could have really lovely stuff um so it was very much about that and a certain kind of customer but i had one friend of mine from day one a guy called dominique who just used to beat me up about having a racing team he said <laughs> you know you love racing you're talking about it all the time you need to have a racing team and i say yeah but it's difficult and you know oh, i'm not sure we've got the right products and he's like no no you've got to do it and eventually he said to me one day he said, so i've i've got grant at condor he wants to do it um <laughs> so will you do the team and I said, oh, yeah, okay then. And he said the same thing to Grant. He said, yeah, Simon's going to do it if you do it. <laughs> so, so I was basically talked him to doing it, and it was, he was quite right, and it was an absolute joyous ride from then. So that was 2006, mm. and we, you know, we pieced together some product. Originally, they wore sport war jerseys, the, mm. the guys on the team, and they were gentlemen players. They were sort of category one racers, not elites. And then we hired Dean Downing and it all sort of took off and then we hired people like Tom Southam and and got John Herity as a manager so Rafa Condor became quite a successful thing you know we dominated yeah. UK racing for a couple of years and we started our pro team range which was really important that we actually did products that were ra- were for racing they were made of the right fabrics and they were more aero it was kind of slightly before aero really took off but they were tight fitting etc cetera, etc cetera. so we thought yeah we're ready now and I, because mm-hmm. I knew Dave Brailsford. at Team Sky and Fran Miller, we had conversations, and eventually they said, "Well, yeah, do you want to do you want to do it?" And I said, "Well, yeah, that'd be amazing." And yeah, thinking, right. "Well, we've got protein products, we've done Rafa Condor, how hard can it be?"
0: <laughs> oh gosh, here we <laughs> go.
1: It, uh, we were talking about living the dream earlier. It, it was a different dream, shall we say? It was so yeah. hard, so hard. It was such a learning curve. Um, ultimately really successful and really satisfying but oh my god the first year or two was chaos you know total chaos because we just went at it like we go at everything with total enthusiasm if you're going to do a pro team do everything you know let's do everything Mm -hmm. let's make all the content in the world let's do a panini sticker a a sticker book of all the races let's let's activate the sponsorship all the time and then let's make custom clothing for every rider and let's make every item of kit custom socks wow. arm warmers caps every jersey every jacket off-bike kit every single thing was custom fitted <laughs> so that the opportunity to get things wrong was was just massive and it was just born out of enthusiasm really but it it meant that you know we started that first season with quite a few things to clear up and i remember dave or maybe rod ellingworth sitting down with me and saying so Simon, I think um, you're focusing on the steak, but you have got to get the peas right first. Yeah. <laughs> so, which I've remembered ever since. It's um, so we, we then spent two years getting the peas right, and then by the end of it, we were back on the steak, and it was already good. That's but it. as a
0: writer, that would have been awesome, you know. Like you know, there's there's nothing better than as a writer the the sponsors whatever it might be whether it's the bike sponsor whether it's a clothing sponsor really really fussing over you and not just generically giving you okay there you go there's that that'll do that'll and as a rider i would have absolutely loved those and i'm not saying it's bad now but those first <laughs> yeah, few aesthetic. years just where, <laughs> where you know where, where everything like you said was fussed over it was like there was extras here and there you would have been like this is the best you know and obviously over time you would have realized, okay, I don't think they need four duffel bags or whatever it might be. Um, it, it was, but, yeah, I love that.
1: It was seven or 800 items of product. So, you know, yeah. I know there's, there's all those little films online of pros opening up their packet of, yeah. pro, you know, usually a cardboard box or something with some kit from Italy or something. And, and it's, like, it's like Christmas Day, isn't it? Yeah. The Team Sky riders got a massive two suitcases, I think, just full of customized stuff with their names on and everything. And they got a handbook. They got a, a ring-bound printed handbook about each item of product. It was signed by everybody at Raffer. I got everybody at Raffer to sign the inside cover. So it's like, you know, we love doing this. Here you go. And that mm. was great, except when you tried it on and half of it didn't fit because we hadn't quite got the custom fitting mm. right, then it all starts to fall apart a bit. You know so and when you you know you've, you've got to get the basic products absolutely nailed first and that's what I think Team Sky was brilliant at was just mm. focusing on the detail and getting the, the core basic stuff really really drilled. It wasn't crazy innovation it was you know just delivering the right stuff properly um, so that was, that was a big learning curve.
0: What was it like then as a fan of the sport um, and I could imagine even myself and I, I have a lot of access that a lot of uh, many other people don't have, but I would love to also then be able to go and sit in a team car or have the access to certain riders or, like you said, talk to Rod Ellingworth and these guys being in these meetings. Was it hard sometimes not to be like a fan and show that excitement when you're with... At those times, Sky was, you know, the best team in the world. They were just innovative. They were doing things that teams weren't doing, and you were involved. You were part of that. What was that like?
1: Yeah, I've, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. And it, I found it quite difficult, actually. And I mm. still find it quite difficult. You know, I, we haven't spent much time together. I don't hang out with with Team EF because I just don't want to overstep the mark. Mm. I, 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 feel, I still feel like there is this massive chasm between the pro team and what we do. And I don't want to come across... I don't want to get in the way. Mm. You know, I, I want to be respectful of of the professional athletes and and i hate the idea of people being nice to me just because i'm running the sponsor you know it's kind of you want them to I be genuine that. yeah yeah i want to be genuine and, I, and i'm a genuine fan so but of course every time you do get anywhere near it is just you know it's, it's overwhelmingly exciting i mean there's, there's a there's a day stage 15 of the tour de france 2013 and that i don't know if you were you riding the tour de france in 2013 um, it was it was a brutally long stage from somewhere up the Rhone Valley to Mont Ventoux, and it finished on the top of Ventoux. And Team Sky were sort of you know dominating everything. And we I went to Ventoux with about twenty or thirty friends, and we had about fifty or a hundred customers and our big horse truck sort of mobile clubhouse that yeah, we had at the time cool. parked six k from the top, just above Chalet Reynard and we waited for them to come. And we watched it on the TV on the side of our van the whole stage, getting more and more excited because Team Sky just sat on the front and just pulled, pegged this brake that'd gone away. And just for 200 kilometers, they were just bossing the peloton. And then it got to the bottom of the climb and more Team Sky guys came to the front. People like Richie and, you know, the climbers came to the front and carried on bossing mm. the peloton, which, you know, now, of course, often it seems quite boring to have teams sitting on the front and shelling people out the back. But then it was, it was my team and there mm. were people that I kind of knew, and and they came up. And I remember by the time they came past, Froome had attacked and had chased back onto Nairo Quintana and gone had gone straight past him. And he came past in the yellow jersey and his Rafa kit. Uh-huh. And I was there with like a hundred customers, and we were probably a little bit drunk, but it was one of those fanboy moments. It's like well, we are part of this. Yeah. You know? Um. It's just, it doesn't get better than that.
0: Well, tell me on the other side, the flip side of the coin, because I can imagine that's the nice part of it. But at the end of the day, we're all prima donnas, cyclists. And I can imagine you alluded to it a little bit there when you said be first, the first year you were like, you know, everyone opened their bag up and everyone was happy till they put the kit on. Is it difficult still to this day to actually please cyclists? Because at the end of the day, it's very, very difficult to make it right for an individual person i want the sleeves this long he wants them that short the skin suit doesn't fit me here what is it actually like working with pro teams is it and like i can imagine sometimes you just feel like i'm just going to throw my hands up i can't be bothered but at the end of the day like you've said a few times here it is the pinnacle and that's what you want to be involved with we are road cycling so you have to juggle it and does it ever just get too much
1: it doesn't for me. I mean, I have to have to admit that I don't get involved in the detail fitting or any of the administration around the team anymore, and was always somewhat away from that. So, you know, I, I probably didn't see all the pain. But we ha- we have an expression in Rafa, which I'm sure lots of people do in companies, which is you know, good enough isn't. Mm. Yeah, I can't bear the idea. Oh yeah, that's good enough. Let it go out the door. Yeah, you know, this, mm. this is this is our passion. This is a thing that matters more to me than almost anything apart from my family. It's, you know, it's the greatest sport in the world. We're right in there. These are the greatest athletes in the world. Of course, good enough isn't enough. You know, it's got to be right. It's got to be perfect. So, and I think the team at RAFA all subscribe to that view. And I'm sure there are moments where they have to bite their lips and, and go home and punch the wall or whatever. But hopefully they never show it because <laughs> they, they do get it. They understand that this is the pinnacle. This is, this is as good as it can be. And everything has to be spot on
0: yeah well tell me about the direction now because i get the feeling and i could be completely wrong here sky was a certain direction from an image point of view and once you finished at sky at 2000 end of 2015 you guys didn't decide to continue on with them you took a different route and you went with the women's team canyon sram which is still with today and in 2019 you joined ef and you spoke about that a little bit earlier on where you said okay we want to make things a little bit more flamboyant in the peloton. But as a company, what was the image that Sky sort of gave you? Because I'm giving the feeling that the, the, the image of Rafa that I know now is it's fun, we're on gravel, you know, we're EFs, really sort of crazy in inverted commas, you know, we wear this crazy kit and we're all having fun, but yet we can still race seriously. The feeling I had from Sky and very much in those days, you described it with that stage was robot-esque we will get the job done but it was very very difficult to find out who the individuals were um i now only know chris from a little bit now after all mm. these years after all these years in the peloton mm. i've finally seen him come out of his shell a little bit since he's left the team um and and inios now it is has changed a little bit over these last few years but as the brand Rafa, i can imagine personally i didn't really want to be involved with the brand Rafa because of that sky feel. It was like, ah, oh, I don't know what that is. It's very, you know, exclusive. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm a bit more flamboyant guy. But then suddenly when we were working together in the last couple of years, I'm like, oh, this is this is my brand, you know. <laughs> this is the colors I want to wear. So tell me uh, about that transition there. like. And I could uh, be wrong, but that's sort of what I saw from the outside.
1: That's really interesting. There's, it points to a couple of things. One thing which we probably won't talk about there's a difference between the reputation of Rafa and the people within the company. And that, that's always been the case. And I think when you, when you focus on a certain kind of look and doing cool content and you know, the, the brand's pretty accomplished. And I think there's a bit of a look don't touch that, that emerged about Rafa at that time in the first 10 years. Mm. And it was probably important that it did because it ga- gave us cut through and it allowed us to create a really strong identity But whenever people met us, they realized that, yeah, we're not these kind of Machiavellian kind of, you know, Uber people. We're just regular fans. And I think what's been nice about the last few years is it's closed that gap. And I think the Mm -hmm. reputation of the brand is now much closer to the reality without Mm -hmm. losing any of the impact, hopefully. But but going back to Team Sky, it it was an amazing ride for four years. But what happens is, you know, if you win everything – sorry, stepping back – the thing to remember – That we always i always think the point of rafa doing this is not to sell more team kit than the next team Mm. or to win more races because we can have trophies in our reception the whole point is about making the sport more successful and reaching more people and engaging and delighting more people and so when you start judging we we judge everything we do on that basis periodically so after three or four years of team sky what became apparent was even though they were winning the tour every year and winning loads of races and there were lots of photos of people with their arms in the air, but actually was it moving the dial? Were were any more people coming to the sport? Did did it really engage people that much more? No. And we just got – we realized that there there had to be a better way. We didn't know what it was, so we thought, Mm. right, okay, we'll do the brave thing like it was brave to take it on in the first place. Let's walk away from it. So we decided to not renew, and that was fine. And then we did that roadmap project where we did a piece of research to try and work out what was wrong with the sport. Why was why were the audiences not increasing? Why were fewer people, you know, a, apart from really old Belgians, following the sport? You know, yeah. what did we have to do to make the sport yeah. more successful? Because that's frankly why I'm in business and why Rafa exists. And we came up with a whole load of ideas, but none of them seemed to fit with sponsoring Team Sky and actually when I first met Philip from EF they were the things that I put in front of him and said well clearly it's got to be all about the characters in the team, clearly we need to be doing more interesting events rather than just world tour races, clearly we've got to make the content you know really sing, we've got to focus as much on that as we do on you know on the kit etc etc and Philip was really excited about it and that's why EF has been how it has been. And it's about mm. trying to reach more people. For mm. for engaged cyclists, it's about making them even more engaged. And for people who are not engaged cyclists, people who don't really know about the sport, it's trying to suck them in. And when you know that, then seeing things like Palace and some of the and bucket hats and you know, this, yeah, the stuff we do, headbands, dare I say it, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, those things they start to make sense because it's about reaching a different audience and exciting people. Um, so, so that's why we ended and that's why we've done EF and um, that's how we'll keep making decisions, I think. But yeah, pro that's, racing, really, yeah. really important. And we're all doing more off-road riding and you know, gravel is everywhere or seems to be in terms of the, the, the cycling press anyway. Um, but actually, road racing is still, and world tour racing is still the shop window and it should be the shop window and we've got to make it better. And if Mm. if that shop window is not really singing, then we're all going to struggle. So I'm still passionate about tying it back to what you guys do.
0: And that's exactly what I was going to ask you now. Moving forward, what is the next vision for Rafa? Because I feel like you guys are always on the cusp of setting the trend, whether that is the the image of it, you know, with the kit, with the look, or whether it's just the feel, you know, with, you know – with rafa racing the videos that we're doing and um just you you have the foresight of what is the next trend yet it's a difficult it's a double-edged sword because you don't want to lose the mission statement of what you originally started at and that was back in you know earlier than 2004 but we talk about the book of the simplicity of the Mm. character of And you don't want to lose that either. So it is, I can imagine it would be very difficult to just keep going down this rabbit hole. Yeah, this is what we want. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, hang on where we've actually, well, this is not where we want to be. So, you know, what is the next sort of image? And, you know, something that is very exciting with me is that the life and the Peloton collaboration, you know, this is a Jersey that we made together to celebrate the podcast. And what, allows you to make these decisions to work with certain you know companies small companies like me and and keep keep going forward like what how's this vision come about
1: Uh, yeah i think it's it still all goes back to the the first premise of refer and why i started it and what it was all about um you know people don't people don't just want product for the sake of product you know they want product because it connects them to something bigger and something Mm. that's more engaging and in our case that's cycling and so we need to be we need to dig ever deeper to connect people to the experience of cycling and the characters and it's still about that human dimension you know, the reason we're working with you and with a number of athletes individual athletes is because we can do much more meaningful product Yeah, you know, a jersey that's designed with you with your imprint in it and your you know your take on stuff is so is worth so much more than just a different colored protein jersey that's from our range i think um yeah. and to be honest you know we, we've used products to tell stories from day one you know whether it's the story labels on the inside of products or it's the whole product itself we've done celebratory products since 2004 and it originally because we, we couldn't celebrate very much because we didn't have much to celebrate <laughs> we used to celebrate places so you know it'd be HOTACAM or VON2 or Stelvio or whatever, <laughs> you know, we take places or it was historic races or it was the Ataputor Tour or whatever. Increasingly now, because we've got these relationships with pro athletes, we can start telling the stories, whether it's Locke or you or um, Sarah Sturm, um, you know, who does, who does off-road or, you know, men and women who we work with, your stories are much more interesting than just a product on its own. So I think you'll see more and more of that. And and. You'll see more and more stuff from the Rafa roadmap. I think you know it's, mm. it's women as much as men, it's you know it's minorities as well as you know the mainstream white audience. And the sport is still horribly white, isn't it? Um, you'll see it uh, being as much about telling stories as it is about just creating products. Um, it's international um, and trying to connect racing to what we do every day. You know how I ride. Still in my head, I'm thinking about a, a turn on. You know, on uh, a climb in the Vuelta, when I'm doing my stupid climb in the Chilterns, you know. <laughs> and, and the more we can connect racing to riding, the better I think we'll we'll all be.
0: Well, let's let's finish up now, and I want your style tip for the, everyone out there listening, <laughs> because you know I, I I've heard that you were a big big fan. I don't know if you're still wearing them, the white Brogs is that, is that correct
1: yeah, yeah brogues yeah. sorry the yeah.
0: brogues so you're a style man yourself and um tell us what for you because we all have our different style and as, as you know i have another podcast talking luft which you will be on as well tell us what is the cycling style head to toe cycling now is it is it short socks is it long nicks is it <laughs> What is it? What is it? What do you see as the ideal cycling style that you want to see happening in the peloton today? So people can take a little tip out of this when they're thinking, you know what, they're getting dressed in the morning. What for you is uh, the <laughs> well, right way to wear your kit? Mate, you're um, going on here, out on a limb.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm out on a limb here because I'm not sure everyone can t- should take style tips from me. But um, I, think, I think it's more important that people have their own style. You know, this <laughs> isn't about... And and I think it's really boring when everyone has the same sock length, because that's what's currently fashionable. And suddenly, jerseys are down to the elbows, because that's what everyone has. That's not style, that's just fashion and following fashion. And style comes when you know who you are, you know, when you fundamentally know who you are, and then you have the confidence to express it. You know so you have a different style to me, but you're definitely a stylish man because you know who you are and you're you're definitely confident about showing it off whether it's your mm. haircut or your tash or whatever or the way you wear product so I think it's much what's much more interesting is when people are stylish than yeah. a particular style so I would always say that first, having said that, there are certain things that I don't like <laughs> and, there are, and there are definitely certain things that I do like um And I do have quite a long list of things that traditionally I've not liked. And interestingly, Rafa, over the course of the last few years, has started making most of them. So (laughs) so that's my team rebelling against my ridiculous sort of formal rules. So toe covers, not a big fan of toe covers. Massively functional, but... You wouldn't put toe covers on your shoes when you're going outside, so your regular shoes. So, why would you do it on site? it's ridiculous.
0: Have you guys Um, not made casual toe covers? We've been waiting for them to come out. Casual toe covers? No. No, no, not casual. I was going (laughs) to say.
1: Yeah, I'll say it now. We're not going to do that. Um, Lobster gloves. Yeah, those gloves where where your fingers (laughs) are connected. They, you just Everyone looks stupid wearing lobster gloves, but they're really effective, and yes, we did make them in the past. Um, peaks on helmets, I hate peaks on helmets, yeah. but that's just obvious. White bib shorts, you know, yes. I know certain brands will, will flirt with white bib shorts, but they're doing it just to try and sort of cock a snook at everybody else because they know deep down that they look ridiculous on almost everybody all the time. What
0: about, what about Cipollini? You've got to be a fan of the full world champion kit.
1: Well, I think, you see, I think World championship. there's a whole, we could have a whole podcast about how should World Champions dress. And, you know, whether it's Bettini with his all-white kit or yeah. Chippo went all-white. I mean, I, a little s- sad story, I once bought a World champions, champions jersey, which, of course, you should never do as a punter unless yeah. you're a World Champion. <laughs> I bought it the day before the du Tour down in the Pyrenees because I needed a lighter weight jersey. And I rode back to the hotel wearing it I don't know why. Yeah. I just bought this thing, but I rode back down this main road and all these cars went past with all these French guys shouting out saying, "Hey, Chippo, so it was the year that Cipollini was world champ, 2003. Hey, Chippo, Chippo, champion du monde." And I took it off when I got to the hotel, put it in my bag and never wore it again.
0: <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, threw it out.
1: <laughs> so there's a there's a whole thing on world champs and I think, you know, you've got to pay it respect and You do Mm. absolutely have to have black shorts. I mean, there's no the world champion should not have anything other than black shorts. You know, it's it's respect for the institution. You know, Mm. Cav got it completely right when he did it. Julian Alaphilippe, he's definitely got too much crowding of logos going on on that jersey. Mm. He needs to make the bands a bit bigger because they're more important than whichever grouting manufacturer in Belgium he's being sponsored by today. Um, But I think you've got to respect the institution, and that's not white shorts, I'm afraid. Chippo's an you- interesting one because he's kind of a stylish man, but it was always just not quite right, was it? A bit like, yeah, I think bling's a bit like that. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. and GVA with his gold. It's like, yeah, I see what you're doing, but I'm not sure.
0: What's your opinion on Mark Madion then? Because the the owner of Francaise Dujur, and what I understand there is if anyone notices, all his champions... It seems like he goes after every national champion every year to have him on his team. <laughs> he he respects the champion and he will have no sponsor on the jersey. And I think in many ways it looks for me a little bit plain, but I love the theory behind it. It's like, mm. no, very respectful. Have you do you know about this?
1: Yeah, yeah I do and I and yeah, Arnaud Demar, sometimes mm. it looks like it's somebody from a punter from yeah, Qua de Bologna, who's just snuck into a race because you know, he's just got this red, white, and blue jersey. I I totally agree with it. I think you can less is more. And we we had this debate with Sky, uh, with Dave. You know, at the beginning of Sky and the first year or two of Sky, they had very few Sky logos. And the beauty of Team Sky was they didn't have many sponsors because mm. they had one massive one. So you didn't have to squeeze on a million different you know sponsors. And I I think they bought the idea that. You didn't have to have massive logos to get your point across. You needed to have a distinctive identity. And so simplicity mm. is really, really important. So I, I would agree with Mark Maddio, perhaps not to have no logos, but the jersey design should shine through. The same with, you know, Posato when he became Italian national champion. He had a brilliant Italian national champion jersey. Um, uh, Andrea Taffi had this yeah. perfect, you know, red, white, and green jersey that's what it should look like it shouldn't mm. look like something you've squeezed it in to fit amongst all these sponsors who are easy come easy go frankly that most of them aren't in the sport for very long um but the world champions jersey lasts forever you know you've got to yeah. honor it i'm a bit old I, school when it comes to things like that white I socks agree. white shoes etc you know it's um i can't do black shoes i think some people rock black shoes you know philip jolbert I can't argue with Phil, you know, he, he looks good in black shoes. But And it is the traditional way. There's just something about – that's one of the good white things about shoes. the peloton at the moment, white shoes and white socks is, is now everywhere, apart from our team, obviously, where we've got Larry disco socks
0: yeah and we've got a whole array of different shoes too and I think I'm going to have to disagree with you on the Chippo note because for me the muscle man suit full top to bottom I thought that took guts and you know when he kept coming out
1: I agree I agree and he took the fines and yeah, yeah I'd always want us to take the fines Mitch, just put that one out
0: there. (laughs) Well, mate, we could keep talking on and on, um, but we're going to have a chat about more and more style on Talking Luft next time. But thanks for touching in today. I really wanted to sort of uncover who you were a little bit and find out the man behind Rafa, and I hope everyone enjoyed hearing from you today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Mitch.
0: Cheers. Well, there we have it. Another fantastic episode, a great story. And it was great to hear about the history of this company, how he's transformed what we used to see as cycling clothing, pro cycling clothing into this beautiful fashion icon it is today. And that's really changed the industry, what we see today. I was lucky enough to be able to work with Rafa personally and create the own Life in the Peloton kit. And that was really special because I got to go behind the scenes go into the creative side of it, see how it all happens and produce this awesome kit. A few people were lucky enough to get on the pre-order and that is starting to come out now. I'm hoping to see that appear in people's mailboxes very, very soon. If you did miss out on that, there's been a little bit extra that's been made and that's going to be put up on the RAFA website very soon. So keep your eyes peeled for that. I want to say thanks to everyone out there who also bought the Doomline t-shirt. I thought that was a really funny spin-off from that episode we did with Robbie McEwen, a fantastic little insight to what that is really like being in the crosswinds and a fantastic design there by Alex as well. So guys, thanks a lot for listening. We're going to have a break for the Tour de France coming up. We've got Talking Luft next week and we'll be back after the Tour de France with another episode with the Cycling Podcast. So, guys, thanks very much for tuning in. And until next time, cheers. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.